We have so many stories in our lives, but our stories are not always heard. On the Hear My True Story podcast, we tell our own true stories. Before the white car backed, our head teacher had scattered. Looking at him, I could only see his tie that was flying backwards, waving at us, and he disappeared in thin air. I want to share my life story. I want to share my voice with the people because I know that uh, just a small joke I can tell through this, this podcast, it will make someone smile. When you ask me what I fear most in life, I would definitely respond to you and say it's fear itself. We are fighting for togetherness. We are fighting for equal rights. We are fighting to end injustice. You don't have to be a storyteller or writer because, guess what? Life writes the best stories. Hear my true stories. You know, I, I, I long for the day where, where Uganda doesn't have to have all of these orphanages. I long for the day where children don't have to be taken out for adoption. And I long for the day where the orphanages can be free and 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 then let the children go home and then where any money and any intervention can be done within communities to strengthen communities so that children don't have to to uh leave them or be put into that situation where they're being put into these uh false fake environments it's such a fake environment an orphanage honestly i mean you know you're from uganda yep. but this is why i try and tell people the orphanage is a fake environment yeah of course because Because, you know, when you go to the real village, which I love, my dad's from a village in Wales, you know, I love that environment. My, my dad was a farmer and I just love, I love the countryside and I love all of that. My dad used to, to walk for four miles to go and draw water from the well when he was a child. You know, I've heard all the stories, but, but when you go to the village and you see, you know, all ages, all interacting and the community And, you know, how it works and the freedom of children now to be able to run around and go and explore and go in the bush. And I loved seeing that when the girls came back from America because they hadn't been able to have that in America. Like they couldn't have it here. You don't let mm. your children wander far from your house. Yeah. But in Uganda, you do. You, you can. You've got that freedom. So yeah. I think that's the thing that I would love people to know that when you're funding orphanages, you're funding the captivity of children, you're funding the separation of children, you're actually funding the abuse of children. Police fund alternative care projects which help to get the children out and get them home. And there's many, there's many good yeah. organizations in um in, in Uganda that are doing that and are very successfully doing that. Yeah. It's not it's not a myth. It's a reality and it can happen if Western money is put into the right organizations, not the wrong ones. This is your favorite time of the week with your number one, one podcast. Hear my true story. Yes, our dear listeners, thank you so much for being part of the wonderful podcast. Hear my true story. Ah, this week is quite wonderful as you hear it. We have a wonderful guest that we are hosting today. And I would like to say we should stay on the podcast and listen. We shall learn a lot from our guest today and hear a lot for 
from their experiences, their work, what they do. Ah, there's a lot to learn from our guests. Thank you so much for always following our wonderful podcast. Yes. This week's special guest on your favorite podcast. Hear my true story. Yes. Hello, my friend. How are you? I am great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So uh, could you please maybe introduce yourself for our dear listeners on the podcast so that they can get to know you more? Okay. My name is Karen Riley. I used to live in Uganda. I just moved back just over a month ago. I lived in Uganda for nearly 12 years, mainly working in the arena of um, vulnerable children and their mothers. Um, and I ran an organization called Reunite, which used to get children back home who had been trafficked for adoption um, or kidnapped or stuck in orphanages. We would get them back home to their families. Oh, thank you so much for that wonderful, quick introduction. So uh, you talked about the organization that you started in Uganda. That's called Reunite. Is it called Reunite Uganda? No, it's just called Reunite. Reunite. Oh, yeah. Because I follow you on on Facebook and other platforms and see, I saw Reunite Uganda and I was like, okay. Yeah, so um, I want to just ask you a question. I mean, is, what is your personal story? Why did you start this organization? What drove you? What was the motivation? Okay, I suppose it all started when we adopted our son from Uganda <clears throat> back in 2005 and he was eight years old. He'd been living in um, an orphanage And he had no family at all, no known family. And I never grew up wanting to adopt or ever in a million years thought that I would adopt. But um, it's a long story how it ended happening. But so we ended up adopting him. So he came back to Wales and we lived here for five years and we learned a lot from him, of course, about real life, what was going on um, in the orphanage, which we're not told about ever. But children's behaviour speak when they can't verbally speak themselves. And we decided when he was getting ready to go to um, secondary school, um, we decided we were going to move back to Uganda and go and work back in his orphanage. And uh, the aim was, was to try and get the remaining 35 children out of there. We wanted to get them families and try and find their families locally if they were there, or if not, try and get them into foster or adoption placements within Uganda. Um, so that's what we did. We were sent by the board here, uh, board of the NGO, and we went over there. Um, unfortunately, it didn't quite work out as we thought it was going to, as often is the case when people go over there, because you start obviously discovering um, things that all is not well. And within a few days, we were told basically that we couldn't work there anymore. So I then um, had a phone, not a phone call, I had a, an email actually from a, an American lady um, that was going to be adopting a child from Insambia Baby Home. And she'd come across my blog that I was keeping at the time, um, or just started really. And she asked if I could go and visit this little girl. <clears throat> And just to check how this little girl was doing. So I did, because I had nothing else to do, of course. And um, that's how I ended up working in a Sambi baby home. It's just a door that opened there. And we ended up resettling a lot of children from there. Back home, found their families. Wasn't hard at all to find their families, which was a big shock to me as well. I mean, I can talk about that more. But um, And that's how Reunite was birthed, really. It was birthed through a little boy called Davin, 
Um, his dad had been in a very, very serious uh, road accident and had ended up in Malago Hospital for months and months. His little boy had been taken to the police station and then got lost in the system. So when I found the little boy in, in Sambi Baby Home, I was told he was an orphan and discovered that he wasn't and we got him home. And it, it's just been the most incredible story. He's been home for about 11, over 11 years now. And I still keep in contact. Funnily enough, his dad messaged me yesterday to ask how I was settling back into into life in the UK. You know, we became friends. I mean, it was a really special resettlement. So that's how Reunite was birthed. I never wanted my own project at all. I didn't want my own NGO because I know that Uganda is so flooded with Western people coming over thinking that they know the interventions that are needed, you know, I didn't want to be one of those people. I just wanted to work alongside anybody else that could um, that could need my skills, you know, the skills that I had, the skills that I was trained in. But I discovered that nobody was really doing what we would what we were doing and what we started to do. So I just thought, okay, I better keep doing it then. And that's that's how it happened. So we never became our own NGO. We were under another NGO called ACI. Um, but yeah. We, I, I'm proud of what we did. It was really hard. And of course, I learned a lot of um, things and some things I wouldn't do the same, definitely, if I was uh, in front of those challenges again. Um, but all I know is I can go to sleep at night knowing that many, many children got home. They weren't stuck in orphanages and they weren't taken abroad for adoption when they shouldn't have been. So even though it's been tough, I can rest in knowing, you know, Mm. those kids those children at home that's the main thing well i mean that's really a wonderful story that drove you into starting the birth of real night from your personal story then to what you realized to find in uganda it's quite wonderful that you decided to move to uganda for these to find out what exactly happens to the children after learning these stories from a child yeah and it wasn't just for that it was also very much for my son because when my son was getting ready for um, what we call secondary, I know they call it middle school in America, um, but um, we didn't want our son to be just the only black child or one of a, of a handful of black children in the school because we were really aware of, you know, having adopted a, a, a boy and just knowing a lot of the challenges that come to black teenagers and men um, growing up we wanted to make sure that he was in a diverse community where he wasn't going to be the only one, you know, the only black child. For his sense of belonging and his sense of identity, it was really important. So we'd started to look at moving to Cardiff, like a diverse community in Cardiff. We were thinking about that, but then we started to see kind of doors open and seemed to be lighting the path to, to go over to Uganda. So we knew, obviously, for him, that would be the best um, situation so that he would be in a school full of, of mainly East African children. I don't think there was one Western child actually in his school. They were mainly from, from the Eastern African community, um, which was a great experience for him. And then he really solidified a, uh, a, a new identity then as, as an African, as a Ugandan, which was so important to us because when he came to Wales, he picked up Welsh very quickly. He loved the Welsh language, of course, because Ugandans are amazing linguists, aren't you? Because you speak so many languages. And mm. so he picked up the Welsh language and he really saw himself as being Welsh, which was fine. Yeah, he, he's Welsh Ugandan, 
but I didn't mm. want him just to purely see himself, his identity as being as being Welsh. He can choose what identity, of course, he 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 wants. But at the time, as his mother of, of a child that was adopted, I was so conscious of that. I didn't mm. want him to lose that. So he regained that so much living in Uganda, and I was so pleased. It was that that was a really successful part of us living over there um, for that for that amount of time. Yeah, and I'm lucky. I've, I've ever met him with you at some point when I visited you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I see that he does many things right now. I follow us on on Facebook. Real active young man. Yeah, he's yeah. great, and he's and he's got his radio show now on a Sunday, which mm-hmm. is great, which people can listen to on on um, Real Cardiff three till five p.m. And he loves it. And he's, I mean, he, like I said, he's an orator, you know, he's mm. great with words and he loves chatting to people and he's, he's really confident um, verbally. So that's, that's been great to see him getting that opportunity. Wow. You just sent my greetings. <laughs> I will. <laughs> yeah, I will. Yeah. So um, I want to ask another question. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, how, how does this illegal adoption happen in Uganda? I mean, like you have mentioned about illegal adoption. How does it happen? Because one of your activities that you do as a reunite, how does this happen? Yeah. Now, people in authority don't like to say illegal adoption. It's kind of an oxymoron um, uh, phrase because they won't say illegal because it passes through the court. So because it's passed through the court and it's been rubber stamped in the court, they say it's a legal process. But we say, and many people say, no, it is, Ill- it is illegal because things weren't done properly and so-called orphans aren't orphans and all of that kind of thing. So I'll give you an example. As we know, I didn't know, but I know now. As I know now, orphanages are not full of orphans. Uganda doesn't have an orphanage crisis an orphan crisis, sorry. It doesn't have an orphan crisis. It has an orphanage crisis. There's a big difference. So we think that orphanages are full of orphans. Then we discover when people have done their research and you start talking to people grassroots, we discover 80 to 90% of children in orphanages have got at least one living parent. Mm. This is why it's a problem. So, for example, if a mission trip come to uh, Kampala and they go and visit an orphanage, because it's like on the bucket list, isn't it, of so many people, go and visit an orphanage, you tick the box, you hug the child, you get the photo opportunity, you can put it online, it makes you feel good, it makes you look good. It's like a petting zoo in a way. You know, you're going to just pet these children and have the photograph. Then often people have even seen children there that they feel some kind of connection to, Of course, the people running the orphanages think, ah, what an opportunity for this child to go to America or Europe. Oh, we don't want to block their blessing or our blessing or block their opportunity. So they won't say, oh, yes, that child actually has got um, a mum who's got seven children, who's recently been widowed. Her youngest child was in a car accident. She can't pay the the, the, uh the medical costs. That's why she put this four-year-old in here. It's temporary. She's hoping to come back and get the child. No, 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 no. They don't say that. They just say, yeah, the child's an orphan. So this is what happens, unfortunately. Um, and also, because mainly the main the main problem with international adoption is it's a business and it's a, it's a for-profit um, uh, process. So a lot of money is made 
across the board from the adoption agencies overseas to in Uganda, the staff in the orphanages, the police officers, the probation officers, which is like a glorified social worker, you know, to people that don't know that term, um, to many, many people all in the process can all make their little cut or being given, oh, the lawyers, of course, the main person in Uganda that makes the most money is the lawyers. At the height of the international adoption crisis, we were we were um, seeing, uh, some lawyers were getting $15,000 per child, one child. $15,000? So yeah, for child. one child. So okay. that was their fee. So you can see in a country which often has so many glass ceilings and so many roadblocks, and in a country where you can't really forge your way forward unless you have people, your people, your family, your friends, in positions of power, when you're blocked, 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 you can see why some people might decide to take that route and think, okay, this is a way for me to make lots of money. Maybe they justify it to themselves. Maybe they say, oh, the child's going to have a better life. Maybe they justify it in that way. But none of us know if the child has a better life because who's following them up? Mm. No, nobody. Nobody follows them up. Not in an official capacity. This is something that we've spoken about for 12 years. There needs to be an official person or an organization that goes and follows up these children to make sure they're okay because what if they're not mm. because some because sometimes they're not you must have heard about the Ethiopian girl Hannah Williams that got murdered over in America she got murdered by her adoptive parents yep. there's been children from Russia who have murdered by their adoptive parents now I'm not saying all children that are adopted are in those situations because of course they're not. And I'm not saying they all go into problematic families. They don't all, they don't all, but I'm talking about the ones that do. Who is speaking up for them? Who mm. is calling for the protection of those children? Nobody. Yeah. So nobody, nobody. Uh, of course, like, um, I wanted to ask, uh, like, how, how are these orphanages? Like, I thought in Uganda, orphanages are no longer supposed to be there, according to the to to the last time I heard from Ugandan information that orphanages are no longer being opened up. Like, starting orphanages is no longer something that should be done because of uh, nah. cases of yeah. parents who had children and put them in the orphanage just for money because these are not funded institutions by the state. They are run by individuals. So they depend on trafficking of children to earn money to sustain their so-called orphanages. Exactly. Now, this is something that not a lot of Western people know is the amount of government-run owned so-called orphanages um, are, you know, you can count them on one hand. The majority of orphanages, it could be, we don't even know. That's the other thing. It could be 800. It could be 1,000. We just don't know. Um, we don't, they're, they're not, uh, you know, the due diligence isn't done. And then, and the, and we, there's nobody really following up all of the time. It's difficult because a lot of people in power in Uganda also have input into some of these orphanages as well, because they're very financially lucrative, very um, so the incentive might not be there to want to regulate the orphanage 
businesses that are going on there because of course like I said there's personal investment and there's many and there's a potential for money to come out I think a lot uh, a lot hangs on the authorities the ministry of gender and above you know right up politically to the top it all depends on the individuals in those places of authority do they have the will and the desire to get children out and stop putting them in and stop imprisoning children for their childhoods and stop damaging these children for the rest of their lives which is what happens for their for the experience of children uh, the experience that children are having in these places it's not a fairy tale, a walk in the park. It's not Disney. I mean, you know that from the work that you've done over there. There's a lot of sexual abuse that happens. There's a lot of manipulation, exploitation, a lot of abuse right through, Um, a lot of shaming. I mean, not good educations, definitely. So a lot of these parents that are putting their children in there thinking at least they can get well-educated, as we know, the majority are not well-educated. So, yeah, so I think the problem is, is, you know, for all of us working in this sector, uh, many people can't speak out. Um, mm. But um, for those of us who uh, who can or, or are willing to, to, to speak out, there is definitely a glass ceiling, which we cannot get through because we do not have the authorities on side to do the right things by these children. Mm. And then what, what can you do then? And then, you know, we had some really amazing people in the Ministry of Gender, but unfortunately, they died during COVID, um, and it's it's been problematic. It's very difficult then to, to get through yeah. and get people on your side to yeah to do the right thing. Yeah, what makes it difficult? Well, I mean, you just you you don't get emails answered. You don't get phone calls answered. You're trying to meet people. They won't they won't meet you. But they'll never say no. We won't meet you. You know Ugandan style. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it very yeah. well you know it's very easy just to kind of like sidestep and just oh busy when can we meet you you know we, we've had a lot of situations where you know we've had some serious cases going on and we just can't meet the probation officer and this is the other thing as you know the probation officer um not as in the western uh version of a probation officer which is to do with people that come out of prison you know in uganda the probation officer is like a senior higher uh, social worker pretty much um they have all the power they have all the power in that district so if you're trying to get somewhere and you're getting a block from them and you can't get through and they won't respond and they won't help you or if they're involved a lot of the time in the cases we've worked on of course mm. The, the probation officers are heavily involved in the situation where the child um, has an, 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 an ethical adoption. They've mm. been the main reason. So then the person you're supposed to go to to say, we've got this case and we've got this issue and we're trying to get uh, some help and some guidance, they're the very ones that have been involved. So where do you go then? So this is this is one of the areas that would be really good to have more of a, in my opinion, I mean, who am I? I'm just, I'm just Welsh. I mean, it's not even my country, but, you know, because my son's from there, I do feel a connection to it. And I do feel I need to speak out about what I've seen as well, because I think that it's wrong mm. not to. So do you know what? The amount of people that have left your country, right, and seen things and they don't speak out, And they don't sleep at night, but they don't sleep. They don't speak out because they know if you speak out, 
you'll be called a troublemaker, you will be dismissed, you won't be asked to go and speak anywhere, you won't be going, they won't be asked to speak in conferences. People don't want you to speak mm. about the truth, even though it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So, so in short, you have just said that um, most people who are involved in this cartel of uh, illegal adoption process, you know, they are people in power. Yeah. They own these orphanages. They need the money because if it's $15,000 US dollars for a corrupt country like Uganda, it can really be hard for you to to follow up a legal process very well. Exactly. And don't forget, that's only that that's only money to the lawyer. I mean, that was the highest amount of money I heard to a lawyer. <clears throat> and uh, she was doing a lot of them. Um, but what tended to happen from my 12 years of being there, they, they would go through seasons. So basically, there would be flavor of the month, you know, lawyer. Mm. So so say somebody was using a particular lawyer because they've all got there or they did. It, it's really got a lot better now um, after a lot of work that's been done. But at one point <clears throat> when there were a lot of Americans coming, they would all share that detail then. Yeah, use this, use this, um, use this lawyer, use this driver, go and stay in this um, mm. this hotel, you know? So then that that particular lawyer then would get a lot of business, but then mm-hmm. I, I saw it over the time. Some of them were wise and sensible enough to step out and get out of it probably because they saw this is not good. This is becoming, this demand from the West is creating this supply in Uganda, which is, is becoming a real problem. So yeah, so that's what I saw. It was just seasons that would come in waves certain lawyers would just be riding on that wave making so much money buying their properties and doing whatever they were doing um and of course people are scared of lawyers aren't they they are, because, are scared yeah because they yeah. are they, 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 they threaten Ugandans with the legal terms that if you don't do this which we go to court and ordinary Ugandan won't understand why what the court is because people are not informed about their rights as human exactly. beings. Exactly. And that is the biggest problem. And that is something, I mean, we couldn't do everything. We could only do so much. And we were so poorly supported, honestly. Um, we had so, 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 so few donations and we were a tiny team. There was only so much that we could do. But one thing that I'd really wanted to do was just to start having more of an impact in actually going to the communities with a screen and showing some videos of people that had been pulled into this so they could tell their stories. Other mothers, you know, who had managed um, to get their children back and could share. For example, don't ever sign anything. Don't ever put your thumbprint or sign anything unless you've got somebody so trusted who you would trust with your life to be able to read whatever they're asking you to sign. But if it's in conjunction with your child, never sign it. But the problem is they have people lying to them saying sign here for an education for your child in Kampala. So, of course, who's not going to want an education for the child in Kampala? And this is why, actually, I found um, Uganda was ripe for being exploited is because you have a culture of boarding schools. It's not Mm. unknown and not um, unusual to send your child to a different district for boarding school. And then they come back in the holidays. So I think that the system in Uganda with the lawyers, they they really um, uh, spoke into that. Because of course, it's the ground is already fertile to understand. Yeah. 
Because, yeah, that's what we do. We send our children to boarding school if we can afford it. Great. What a great opportunity. Not knowing that the child is going into the waiting room, basically, in that Mm. particular orphanage for the process to be finished and they'll be shipped out. Yeah. I mean, I have to explain to our listeners, a boarding school in Ugandan system is when children are sent to school for three months and they stay there, they live there, they sleep there. At the end of the term, they get back home. So this is the system that the traffickers used to abuse by deceiving parents that oh, we are taking your kid to a boarding school. So you sign this paper, when you, say, you sign the documents, your kid is taken, you never see them again until maybe the term ends or maybe not at all. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so um, I wanted to ask you something about, um, are there any experiences like you have had, like successful stories on cases that you have worked on as Reunite that you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm very pleased that we were able to bring a number of children back from America that were taken. Um Of course, they all came back because the American families that had adopted them or were in the process of going to adopt them um, wanted the children to come home when they heard the true stories, not the stories they'd been initially told. So I'm really pleased that we were able to do that. And and it's proved, it's proven, um, you know, the children, um, some of them have been back for nearly six years now and, and they're all doing well. And they're very well-grounded, well-rooted back at home in their schools, in their communities. They can all speak fluent Uganda, which is brilliant. And, you know, even though for us as an organization, and particularly me as a person, because I was kind of at the front, um, I had a lot of backlash, um, actually, uh, regarding uh, the work that we did with those children. But, um, you know, sometimes in life, uh, you have to do the hard thing and sometimes you get a backlash and you become deeply unpopular, but it doesn't mean that you did the wrong thing. It was still the right thing to do. So I will always be grateful and thankful um, that we were able to be involved in that because it had never happened um, through the right processes before globally. It was the first time in Uganda. Children had been brought back to Uganda, not through us. We heard about it. Um, and put in boarding schools because maybe their behavior uh, in America uh, wasn't sufficient or maybe they were missing. I don't know. I don't know because we were never we were never approached by the American families. But it was done under the radar, and I don't think it was done through proper channels or anything. But the children that we brought back, you know, it was done through the Ministry of Gender and it was all done officially. Um, and... Uh, yeah, the legal guardianships, they've nearly all been overturned. There's just one left needing to be overturned, but it's in the process. We're just waiting for that to, to happen, waiting for the courts and stuff. But um, yeah, so th- I was really, really pleased about that. And actually, every single one that we've got home, actually, I've been really, really, really proud of and really pleased with. Um, just to see them just integrating back in their family, just seeing the visual mirroring, mirroring they call it in adoption, when, you know, you look like somebody in your family and how that really makes you feel that you belong and that you're group grounded and rooted in this family. Make sure to leave a review. This makes our day and fuels future episodes. Hear my true story.
Okay, so uh, I really understand that. But then you mentioned about bringing so many kids back to their families in Uganda. So I want to ask, how do you follow up with these children to know that they are okay? They are not going to go back into the same system where they feel depressed. Maybe they can't have a meal a day. Maybe they cannot find where to study. Maybe, they, you know, the cultures differ. When someone has been in the U.S. as a child and then you bring them back to Uganda where everything is new, how do you support them? How do you follow up with this? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think this is a is a question that a lot of people would have. So firstly, we do an assessment. So the social worker will go and see the family, see the place where they're living, where will the child be sleeping? If the child didn't have a bed, which they didn't in all of these cases. So we bought double deckers, we bought mattresses and bedding and, you know, blankets and everything. And Um, and then if they needed some economic empowerment, we were trying to help. So we helped one mum to set up a little shop in her house, front of her house, and, you know, gave some chickens, like a chicken project, like different things, different things. Um, the main, the main uh, challenge has always been and will always be for, for vulnerable Ugandan families is the school fees. You know, if you can cover the school fees or get that sorted out, Most of the families are from rural areas. And as you know, you know, Ugandan um, soil, your land, it's so fertile. You know, you're agriculturalists, you're farmers, you know. So most of the people that we work with have got some land. So they can grow, they can grow for home consumption, eating at home, they can sell um, as well to make some extra money. But it's always the school fees. So what ended up happening is we ended up just paying the school fees which has been a challenge because, like I said to you, we don't get many donations. Um, but we've managed so far. I mean, we're looking at trying to get something, trying to see if we can partner with another organization from next year to see if they can take on the school sponsorship because it really is difficult for us. Um, but, yeah, they're in school. They all speak really good English. I mean, of course, I mean, English is one of your main languages, which is funny, isn't it? Because so yeah. many people that don't understand the continent in general and don't understand the effects of colonialism, they don't know that that in many African countries, English is one of the main languages. So, yeah, their, their English is brilliant. And, um, yeah, and then after that, then, yeah, we do we do follow-ups. So we'll do at least one a term. I mean, with some families, like the children that came back at the beginning, we were visiting at least once a week, sometimes twice a week, because we were really concerned about the child traffickers coming back. And it and it was it was problematic because there were people living in their communities that had been involved in what happened, uh, the reason why they, they got taken in the first place. So we were really concerned. And of course, Phones are great. Everyone's got a phone. So the social worker and our investigator can keep in regular contact on the phone with the countries that are more, um, with the family, sorry, that are, that are, uh, that we need to keep our eye on more, which is particularly these children that went to America. The thing is, you see, I don't know if you saw that CNN, um, two part CNN film that got put out. Yeah. Um, I saw yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, that, that uh, like a lot of things, it had its pros and its cons, you know, but its cons were people didn't like it, that the light was being shone on very problematic practices in Uganda. And um, it meant a lot of doors were shut for us. And, uh, you know, 
we were kind of had the, the, the writing was written on the wall for us. Um, yeah, I mean, the pros were, of course, it made it more, people were more aware that these things were going on. And, and I heard that Tanzania and Kenya had been thinking of restarting, but when they saw that, they decided not to. If that's true, somebody told me if it's true, um, that's good. That was really, really good uh, that they kept it shut. Uh, they kept that door firmly shut. Because the problem is, you see, even though at the height, there were less than 300 children going to America at the height. I think it was 290 something at, at, the, at the highest. Um, and then, of course, the numbers are coming down, coming down, coming down for various reasons with the law change in two, t- 2016. And maybe the CNN film helped as well. I don't know, in 2017. And obviously all, all the work a lot of us were doing as well. Mm. But it's still... Um, it, why it's so problematic is even though less than 300 going every year, many children were trafficked into the orphanage system waiting to see if they would be chosen or if they could be a potential candidate to go. Well, when they didn't go, they were left there languishing. For example, for example, one of the girls uh, that came back, uh, Viola, I can say her name because her name's been shared publicly, but uh, Viola, her older sister was going to be adopted as well. But they all lied about her age and they said that she was nine, I think, but she was actually 14. So uh, when the adoptive parents came, I mean, they quite rightly said we can't take her because, you know, because of their setup at home and it wouldn't have been right. They did the right thing and they felt terrible about it, but they did the right thing. But she was left then in the orphanage. Nobody said, okay, let's let that girl just go home. You know where she's from. Let's just get her home. They just left her there and she did not have a good time in the orphanage. So it was only when we got involved with Viola's case and we discovered that she was in that orphanage and we started pushing, pushing, pushing um, to get some intervention. And thankfully the, the police got involved. The police went in and uh, that, that girl eventually got home. But she would have just been left there. And that's the thing. It's the invisible trafficking of children for adoption, which is not seen. And that's a pure example right there. Mm. It's, it's happening, but people can't see it because it is done by people that are within the families of these children from relatives involved. So how do you deal with this when you bring back a kid and a relative was involved in the trafficking or in the adoption process? How do you deal with that? To be honest with you, um, we only had one. We only had one case like that when an uncle, when an uncle was involved on some level. Um, so yeah, I mean, we had to obviously we had to do a lot of work around that and like speak to the mum a lot and just make sure that you know we suggest you keep uh, arm's length, which of course she wanted to keep an arm's length from him anyway because he'd been involved. But no, we didn't find that a lot. To be honest with you, we found it a lot more with CDOs, probation officers, nurses, police officers, teachers. You know, these people in power that have access to the children in everyday life, have access to the families in everyday life, know their vulnerabilities, know, oh, the father's just died in that family. Swoop in take advantage it seems to be in my experience anyway it's been more that is the people in authority more than family members mm. okay i think that is i can really understand that because um uganda is quite a poor country where people in authority some of them are very corrupt some of them want a lot of money that the state, the state cannot pay them for their job as social workers 
So they take advantage and they abuse the system. And it's the same case, not just with uh, illegal adoption, but also it's the same case with other forms of trafficking of children. Because I work with an organization where we also raise awareness about these same issues, we find that the people in power are the one really traffickers that are really driving the issues of human trafficking or child trafficking in Uganda, and you can't fight them. So that brings another question. What are some of the challenges that you first, you as reunite in Uganda, or you first up to date because you're still working in Uganda? Um, I would say the biggest, the biggest problem has been um, trying to raise funds to do our work. Um, you know, on average, we would get like around $300 a month um, to do our work, which of course isn't enough. It meant that I couldn't have a salary. It meant that the, the guys that I was working with in the team um, could only be paid, you know, when they worked. Um, and you couldn't build capacity of an organization and really create a re- very large organization just in terms of being able to support each other and do the work that was needing to be done, not in an egotistical point of view. So definitely that. Then I would say being able to share about this work, but openly so that people can be educated and will want to support you, but also on a parallel to be able to protect the children and the families that you're also working with and show them in a dignified way and not exploit them um, and not pull the heartstrings of people in the West and manipulate tears of people in the West, which is often how NGOs work and get their uh, finances because they always do that. They always paint Uganda as this very helpless um, place and they don't ever say they are incredible, magnificent, inspiring people. Well, for example, like you. I mean, you, so many other people that I met in Uganda, you don't hear about them, but they're not really, those people aren't supported because those people also are challenging the system. And often I think, you know, when you're dealing with any kind of dictatorship or any kind of environment where you want to suppress and keep people down, 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 you don't want to hand the mic to them because you don't want to amplify their voices. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and I understand that. It is the same case when you are dealing with issues that, um, for example, human trafficking is a very big issue in Uganda and it's done by people in power. So, no one is going to fund that institution or that fight against human trafficking, child trafficking when they're in power. It's, it's, it's about them. So this exactly. is what I've found as, uh, because so we fight child trafficking in Uganda as an, organ, uh, as an organization in Uganda. So we find the same problem of funding, that funding is not given to real issues on the ground that people are fighting for. Rather, the funding is given to issues that don't matter. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's true. And I think as well, another thing that I found hard, I've got a bit better um, as I've as I've grown, um, but I have found it really hard with knowing that people say things about me, particularly in America. America has been kind of my nemesis, really, um, because most of the work that we did, it was it was about American adoptions. European adoptions are coming up more now in Uganda, but at the time, at the height, it was America. I did find that really hard because people were saying things about me and making assumptions about me and lying, outward lying about me. 
um, not even knowing me, not ever having a one-to-one, not having the, the, um, the, the courage, maybe not even the courage, but just having the decency to email me and say, oh, I've heard this about you. Do you mind if I have a quick Zoom call with you and just clear this up? Because I'd like to know if this is true or not. People just didn't. So I think that that suited a lot of people to undermine me, to, to discard me and to, to um, make me the problem. Instead of actually, I was part of fighting the problem, but they didn't want to see that. They wanted to see it as I became the problem, which I did. I became the problem for a lot of people. I'm still the problem for a lot of people. I'm actually keeping quiet about so much right now. Mm. Of course, I am. <laughs> I know so much, of course. And yeah. I've seen so much and, I, and I've and i experienced so much and with very, very difficult behavior and people treating me very, very badly, I've kept it very quiet and not exposed people because at the end of the day, I don't want to fight them. I want to fight the system and fight actually what the real problem is. It shouldn't be about egos and about, oh, they really hurt me, so I'm going to say this because it's not about that. You know, I, I, I long for the day where, where Uganda doesn't have to have all of these orphanages. I long for the day where children don't have to be taken out for adoption. And I long for the day where the orphanages can be free and f- and, and they let the children go home. And then where any money and any intervention can be done within communities to strengthen communities so that children don't have to, to uh, leave them or be put into that situation where they're being put into these uh, false fake environments it's such a fake environment an orphanage honestly I mean you know you're from Uganda but this is why I try and tell people the orphanage is a fake environment yeah of course because because, you know when you go to the real village which I love but when you go to the village and you see you know all ages all interacting and the communities and you know how it works and the freedom of children now to be able to run around and go and explore and go in the bush. And I loved seeing that when the girls came back from America because they hadn't been able to have that in America. Like they couldn't have it here. You don't let mm. your children wander far from your house. Yeah. But in Uganda, you do, you you can, you've got that freedom. So yeah. I think that's the thing that I would love people to know that when you're funding orphanages, you're funding the captivity of children, you're funding the separation of children, you're actually funding the abuse of children, police, fund alternative care projects which help to get the children out and get them home and there's many there's many good organizations in um in in uganda that are doing that and are very successfully doing that yeah it's not it's not a myth it's a reality and it can happen if western money is put into the right organizations not the wrong ones yeah Uh, and uh, and and for what you, t- you talked about orphanages, I mean, I'm a Ugandan. I know about orphanages. I can also speak my experience with them. Of course, they are they are cliche, like they 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 they, they pretend they are they are helping the children who are orphans, but they are not orphans. That's number one. There's a lot of sexual exploitation of children. There's a lot of child abuse happening there. They some of them end up starting things like children troops. You know, these troops that come to Europe and yeah. perform as children and that. They, I hate that because they use, they abuse these children. They make them work 24 hours, making them higher learning to dance, to do, you know, these traditional dances. And then they bring them to Europe, to the U.S. for these tours. And then they go back to Uganda. 
they they stand these orphanages they really abuse they don't have their rights as children they it's really worse i mean for me i know it so exactly and and you know what a lot of people don't know as well yeah. is that often these children are hand picked from their particular family because of course they are the ones that are talented in dancing yeah. and singing um and and confidence and all of that although although of course they're trained up even more with that but what people don't think about is the impact it has on the children that are left the siblings that are left in in that family and the impact that it has on the rest of the extended family because now that child is seen as the savior of the family and oh yeah of course they're going to bring back the wealth of the west and the wealth of whatever so it puts a big 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 pressure on that child and they can't ever really in my opinion anyway feel part of their family properly because they've been handpicked the other thing is do you know what i'll never forget of course you learn the truth when you go over there well you learn the truth if you want to learn the truth if you open your eyes and you open your ears you'll learn the truth when you go to uganda and i i remember i got told this story i was so shocked about one of these troops they were in tabi airport and they had all their families there waving them off all excited clapping their hands and everything and they were so called orphans and they were flying over to america to do the tour as so called orphans but the whole family was there yeah that's what i i say in this um it's now a big problem for europe and the us saying children choirs children orphanage choirs troops these are human traffickers i see them i see them come to europe i see them do performances i know some of them and i can't say no because when you don't do that you don't get the money these people exploit children to get money and they have exactly they have oh, they have uh, here in german you find some of them have hinds they call them associations that correct money give these children they exploit children in these so called orphanages and then they come to europe here in german they do performances they go back they live in a very hard life they are, they are not enjoying as children they are not there is not their will to do these dances for you why would you put someone's kid to to do dances not on their will and you brought exactly. them together you are helping them to study and then they, you expect to get from them to perform because if they don't perform they don't study that's the exactly. agreement Exactly. Do you know what? I remember, I can't remember how old I was, but I must have been somewhere between 15 and 20. So it's a long time ago, of course, decades ago. I remember when one of these choirs came to my city. The city that I'm now living back in actually. Um and I went to see them with my mum and various people. And oh, they were so cute on the stage. Of course, this is before I knew anything. They were so cute on the stage and they were so amazing and they're always between the same ages between like the ages of 7 and 10 aren't they they always seem to take them around that age I don't know why it seems to be that age but um I remember at the end of the of the um at the end of the performance the one child uh, stepped forward and I'll never forget she said and if any of you are asking no you cannot adopt us and then everyone laughed in the in the congregation because probably a lot of people were thinking that oh look they're so cute wonder if you could adopt them i don't know i don't know why people laugh but anyway the funny thing is is years later i happened to go uh, somebody that i knew was running one of these uh, children's choir things 
And um, he just said to me, do you want to come to the head office? So I went with him. Anyway, I met a guy that had been on that, in, in that tour, that time. So I saw him when he was a child, when he was on the stage in my city. At that time, I just explained to you now, he was there as a child. And now he was an adult and now he was working for the same organization. So I think he went out then and he, you know, they're still doing the tours. It just goes on and on and on. It never ends. It never ends. So the children grow up in it and maybe some of them stay in it like he did. So they would go on the tours to different countries, chaperone, I think they're called, looking after the children. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of child labor, child exploitation in these orphanages or so-called children homes for... Yeah, they have so many things that happen there. But because of time, we cannot really finish this topic. I want to ask you, to ask you something. Okay. I mean, like... um. You said you don't have a lot of funding and then you self-fund yourself. So how can people support your work in Uganda as an organization? If they wanted to, we've, they can donate on PayPal, um, paypal.me forward slash Reunite Uganda. Um, we've got a website, reunite.live, and we've got Facebook and Instagram. Um, Instagram is reunite one, the number one, and then uh, Facebook is just reunite. Um, yeah, that's the only way. I mean, we haven't got an NGO outside of Uganda. We're just a project under the NGO in Uganda. They can also, of course, donate directly like a bank transfer to the organization in, in Uganda. I could give you all of this information. You could just put it on um, if you wanted to put it on. On the description uh, of the podcast, I write yeah, it down. Yeah. 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 But I remember <laughs> something. I just, because of time, I'm looking on time here. Um, what what do you advise for any person who would like to support organization in, in Uganda? Like, for example, these so-called international organizations. What advice would you give them? Because you have worked there, not just as a reunite person, as an individual, but also you, you have this other culture of being from the European part of the world where we see the so-called funders come from. What advice would you give to such organizations? I wouldn't say to people to stop funding because, of course, you know, money is power and money does make a difference and money can, you know, push push um, good things forward. But I would actually say I wouldn't advise people to fund the big organizations because the problem is everyone funds the big organizations all the time, all the time. They've got millions of dollars. You know, I would say if you've got a heart for something, please fund smaller organizations because your $50 or your $20 or whatever can really make a massive difference. But do your due diligence, make sure that you find out as much as you can about the organization to make sure that the money really is going to the people that they're supposed to be serving and that the money isn't going to like um, a holiday to Zanzibar in, in the school holidays or funding a massive, nice brand new four by four or make, you know, paying their rent in a $3,000 house because that happens in all uh, organizations, big and small, not all in some, sorry, in some organizations. uh, Yeah. So I would say that basically, and definitely never, 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 never don't fund orphanages. Don't. Unless they have saying we are an orphanage, but we are now in a process of deinstitutionalizing now, and we're in, in a process of getting these children out, getting them back to their families or alternative families, and we're going to close, or we're going to change into a community model, um, something like that. That's fine. But 
If they are, we are an orphanage. We are always going to be orphanage. We're never going to change. Do not let one single shilling, penny, dollar, whatever, go into the abuse of children and into keeping children captive for their childhoods. Don't do it. Because that's what you're doing. And, you know, the more realization that people have about the reality of orphanages um, and not the fantasy, because that's the thing. In the West, we've got a fantasy. We don't deal with the reality because not enough people speak about it. Because, you know, it's hard to talk about it. People don't want to talk about it. It's, it's, It's horrible to hear. Plus, let's be honest, who wants to feel that they've been duped and have been exploited themselves in the West. Nobody wants to feel like a mug, like I've been stupid, sending $100 every year for the last 10 years. And now you're telling me that my money's been been, um, funding the abuse of children? Who wants, you know, it takes a lot of courage and character to to deal with that, doesn't it? Okay, thank you so much for that. Uh, Is there anything on this topic that you would like to share that we have not talked about? I think I've said everything. Hopefully I haven't said too much to get me killed and poisoned, but we'll see. <laughs> you know how it is. So would you like to say bye for now to the yes, listeners? Bye. And I'm sorry if I've spoken too much. I'm a, I'm Welsh and I'm a woman and that's a lethal combination. That's all I can say because we talk a lot. So <laughs> I'm sorry if I've got too many words for you to edit. But <laughs> Yeah, no problem. You don't have so many words. I like doing my work of editing, you know, or doing podcast. Do you know why I started this podcast? Because yeah. I, it was in Corona time. I was so lonely. I could not do performances on stage. I left Uganda where I could do performing time. And then I started doing online performances. Then from there, I realized I can tell my own stories. I started doing storytelling nights here in Marburg, here in German. But then Corona came in. I could not do this anymore. So I had to decide doing podcasting sharing stories and also inviting people to talk about things that they they don't talk about most of the times. That's great. And you're great at it. Honestly, I'm a big fan, a big fan of your work. I love that street performance that we did. It was so fascinating how you nearly got arrested or you got pulled into the LC, remember all that? Yeah. Around child traffic, adoption trafficking. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. So yeah, I'm a big fan of your work. I think you're brilliant what you do and I love your organization with the the against child trafficking um, in Uganda. So yeah, thank you so much. Keep going. You're you're brilliant, brilliant. Our dear listener, thank you so much for listening to our podcast and I hope that you enjoyed our conversation. Yes, next week we shall continue with the same guest. Yeah, and we hope that maybe you can be part of the next conversation and get to know more about the guest, what was the experience of working and living in Uganda and what other things she does in her life other than fighting human trafficking in Uganda. We not only have voices for a podcast, but also faces for YouTube. Don't miss your next episode. Hear my true story. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Music by Edwin Matovo, hosted and produced by Otako. Subscribe to our podcast for more stories and visit us on our website, hearmytruestory.com for more stories. All the links are listed in the show notes of this podcast.